Today, we're talking about David Holes, the founder of MidJourney, and a guy who's just been around Silicon Valley for a long time. He founded another company called Leap Motion, and he's someone who's incredibly important in the world of artificial intelligence and startups right now. He's running an incredible business with MidJourney, but no one's really talking about him because he's not quite at the scale of Sam Altman in OpenAI. He's not testifying in front of Congress, and MidJourney is kind of this awkward product that lives in this discord and doesn't really have an outsized position in the news media, even though, as you'll see, it's become this juggernaut of a business and it's really fascinating to dig into. So I think David Holes is going to be a lot more relevant soon and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about him. So I wanted to give you an overview of his life, his career, some of his philosophy and kind of understand what he did to get to where he is right now. It's basically the the greatest comeback story in the history of tech that I can find. And you'll see this with the story of Leap Motion, which was this slog of a business that took him a decade and it was really, really hard. And then MidJourney was just this rocket ship. So I think there'll be a lot of really fascinating and encouraging learnings from this one. And I think that he might be representing kind of a new era of company building in the high interest rate post boom era where he really isn't focused on these massive fundraising rounds, getting a lot of press. He's building what is essentially a bootstrap company with a very small team and low overhead, but hugely profitable. And I think we might see more of this and it's going to be something that a lot of people are going to be looking to as an example of how to build a really successful and durable business in the near term. So I want to answer, you know, how did he become this overnight success with MidJourney? Obviously, it was a long time in the making, like any story. And how will this change the funding of AI companies going forward? And then there's a couple other interesting strategic takeaways to compare MidJourney and David Hull's strategy to OpenAI and understanding how he thinks about MidJourney as a product, not just as a business. And so just to give you a little overview of the scale, MidJourney, you know, they make money very simply. They just charge for subscriptions to generate AI-generated images in their Discord. They have three pricing tiers, $10, $30, $60 a month. And if you are on the enterprise plan, you have to pay $60 a month if you're making over a million dollars a year in revenue. And there's a bunch of rumors about how much they're making. Some people say 50 million a year. Some people say 80 or 200. There's some crazy estimates that are up in the 300 million. But very clearly, they are making a ton of money with MidJourney. And they still have a very, very small team. People said around 11 people, although that might be out of date. They might have hired a couple more people. But the impact of this tech is just incredible. They have 18 million people in their Discord right now as I'm recording this in June of 2023. And it's all just been basically a decade in the making. You know, David's one of those guys who was, you know, Forbes 30 under 30 and Fast Company's most creative people. He has 110 patents and publications with over 4,000 citations. He raised over $120 million of venture capital. But for a long time, he was just kind of struggling with this first company. And then he finally hit it out of the park with MidJourney. So it's a really fascinating story. Let's start with his background. So he was born in the 80s and grew up in South Florida near Fort Lauderdale. And his dad was a dentist and had this weird kind of quirky dentistry job where he had a dentist office that was on a boat. And, the, and his dad would sail around the Caribbean and South America and do dental work. He would just kind of pull up to a port. People would get on and then they, he would do the dental work. But once David was born, his dad kind of settled down, but in a very, very sleepy part of South Florida. You know, this is not Manhattan or Silicon Valley. And David grew up pretty isolated, basically in a retirement community. There's just a bunch of old people around. But his dad has a computer because he's a dentist. And so David learns to program in this very old programming language called Scheme. And he started hacking. And one of the games that he was playing at the time was this video game, Jedi Knight Dark Forces. And I, I remember this game. It came out in 95. I don't know if I actually played this one, but it tells the story of this guy, Kyle Katarn, who I was like obsessed with from these Star Wars books at the time. And it was released for MS-DOS and Macintosh. This is like 19, 1995. And David learns to hack the game 
to like shoot rockets out of his hands and like just mod the game basically. And this is a very classic story for people in tech. You know, they start with video games, then they start modifying them, and then pretty soon they learn proper programming. And so in high school, he's, you know, using some of his tech knowledge. He runs a design business. He's going to a lot of science fairs and he's judging them actually and learning a ton about just science projects and testing different things. He's clearly very, very smart. And he winds up going into academia basically and goes to UNC Chapel Hill to get a PhD in applied mathematics. And so when he goes to do his PhD, he's torn between physics and math. And physics, you know, values reality over the truth and math revolves all around truth over reality. And so he kind of splits the difference and studies applied math so he can both, you know, learn kind of the deepest science possible, but still have an impact and still make sure that what he's doing is not purely theoretical in kind of science paper land. And he's obviously extremely talented as an undergrad and as a graduate student because he goes to become a student researcher at the Max Planck Institute and then also goes to NASA and is at their Langley campus doing grad student research. And he's doing all these crazy projects. He's mapping rat brains and working on atmospheric science. He's working on LIDAR and all of this incredible tech at, at NASA. But at a certain point, he realizes that he's doing all these very small projects and none of them are really having a major impact. And he wants to find focus and he wants to find a project that can really be his sole focus and have something that he can bring to the world and kind of leave a mark on the world. So he starts this company, Leap Motion, which was a hand tracking device. And he'd actually been working on this since middle school. There was this typing class that he had in middle school where, and they told him that if he could type 60 words a minute without looking at the keyboard, he didn't have to do the class and he could do whatever he wanted. And so he instantly learned to type really fast, gets out of class and then starts to work on 3D modeling and working with computers. And then he realizes that there's something wrong with the way that people interact with technology. Basically there's a bottleneck, like your mind can think very fast, but actually getting that information into the computer is very difficult. And so he believed that the biggest limit in technology wasn't necessarily the cost or the size or the speed, it's the interaction model. And so Leap Motion is founded to create a way to interface with computers more quickly and get more out of a computer. And so he winds up building this device that tracks your hands and then can take that data and put it into the computer. And then you can interact with, with anything in the computer just with your hands without any controllers or anything like that. And in 2009, he meets this, he has like, it's kind of a foreshadowing of the AI stuff that happens later in his career where he meets with this famous scientist and the scientist is giving a speech to a room of 200 kids and the kids are all enchanted. They're all, you know, fully attentive. And the scientist says, in 20 years, we'll have computers more powerful than the human brain. And so a kid raises their hands and asks like, and then what happens? And the scientist looks confused and says, well, what do you mean? And the kid, you know, asks like, well, if computers are more intelligent than us, what's gonna happen? Are they gonna kill us? Are we gonna be their pets? And the scientist just says, no, they're not gonna kill us. He thinks that we're gonna become the machines. And of course the kids are like really freaked out about this. And so David takes the scientist to the side and says like, I can't believe you said that, like becoming the machines, like this is a very abstract sci-fi concept. Like it kind of makes sense that this might happen, but it's crazy to say it to the children. And the scientist just, you know, says, look, people love to solve problems, but they don't want to change anything. They don't get it. If you solve problems, things are going to change. And I think this is, this is a big theme in David's life where he is able to look into the future and a lot of what his success is dependent on is dialing in how far he's looking into the future. And there'll be a bunch of crazy examples where he was either too early to something or maybe a little bit, He like a lot of it is just, he needs to, he's thinking so far in the future that it takes him too long to actually commercialize the technology that he's working on. And that's kind of the story of Leap Motion. This is 2009 and he's trying to commercialize gesture technology really, really early. Like you have to remember, there weren't even major iPads that were popular at the time. Like I think Windows didn't have touchscreens at the time and none of the big tablets were popular. And this is very ironic because now we've seen with the Apple Vision Pro launch that hand tracking, Apple is all in on hand tracking. They Their product does not have controllers. They clearly think this is the future. And the story of David Holes working 
like, you know, kind of aggressively against Apple and, and developing a technology that Apple would eventually really go all in on is going to be a theme later in the story. But let's start with like the beginning of Leap Motion. So the very first product was a really interesting algorithm. It, instead of using cameras to look at the hand and then decide the pose of the hand and then take that data and put it into the computer, it used shadows instead of cameras. So they would shine a bunch of different lights at the hand, all different colors, and then one camera would be able to extract the shadow from multiple lights. So you only need one camera to get a bunch of different representations of a hand. And this is very, very, it's very weird. Obviously you can see that there'd be a bunch of problems and eventually it became much cheaper to just throw tons of cameras on it. And that's why every VR headset has a bunch of cameras on it now. But back then it was actually simpler for them to just have one camera that looked at different shadows to reconstruct the pose of the hand. And there's also this beautiful irony that David spends this decade with Leap Motion basically solving hand tracking. And now with Midjourney, obviously you've, you've seen the number one problem that these AI image generators have is that they don't get the hands right. So his whole career, uh, there's not much of a connection between Leap Motion and Midjourney, but the, the problem of solving the representation of human hands is clearly a thread that continues throughout his career, which is very, very funny. And so at Leap Motion, he's very focused on user interaction. And he works with this, this professor, Alan Kay, who is like a legendary computer scientist. He created object-oriented programming and the graphical user interface. Like the reason we have Windows is a lot due to Alan Kay. And Alan Kay told David, don't think about features, just think about how the user learns. And of course, this was you know, a huge hurdle for Leap Motion because they had to create this entire new paradigm for interacting with the computer and solving that problem of user education, getting the user to actually be able to work with this new input was something that they struggled with for years and years and years. But with Midjourney, we'll see that that user education piece is a huge reason why Midjourney has been a success. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit, but let's talk about the corporate structure of Leap Motion. So it was originally called OcuSpec, and in 2011, they do a small seed round with Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund. And during the pitch process, you know, obviously Andreessen and Founders Fund both get it because they, eventually do Oculus and they're good solid VCs. But one of the investors that David winds up pitching has the weirdest interaction that I've ever heard. So everyone's wearing 3D glasses and David's doing this demo where he's controlling a mountain out of a wall and pulling it and rotating it and pushing it back all just with his hands. And it's very much like that Minority Report movie and it's very futuristic. But this investor steps forward and takes off his 3D glasses and says, oh, okay, I, I get it. This makes sense. And, you know, David's relieved. He says, oh, like it's been a rough week of pitching. Finally, you know, we have an investor who's interested. And the investor says, okay, so, you know, you're tracking things in three dimensions. Could you track things in two dimensions? And David, of course, says like, yes, 3D is like 2D. Like, of course, you can, you can track things in two dimensions. And so the investor says, I see. So have you ever considered just giving the first two dimensions away for free and then charging for the third dimension? And like David's like, oh wow, like that is a really interesting idea. And the VC is like, you should think about it. And then of course, like they never speak again because this is just an outrageous thing. Clearly he's building a three-dimensional platform. Like this wouldn't, it's not even novel in 2D. It doesn't even make any sense, but this investor is just completely prioritized with with just like, how can you make the most money from this? And even if you completely, you know, ruin the experience and make the product terrible, w w will that somehow increase monetization? And clearly monetization was not the issue with Leap Motion. It was just creating a product that actually worked, was sticky with users and people could actually get value from. And this was really like a hard tech problem. Like they were working on hardware, they were building this really complex hand tracking software. The, the question was not, how do you monetize it as quickly as possible? But I think this bad experience with investors <laughs> really 
left a mark on David because he shared this anecdote, you know, years later. And as you'll see with Midjourney, he hasn't raised any funding. And it's very, it's very unclear how he thinks about venture capitalists in general now. But back in the early days of Leap Motion, they were on the traditional Silicon Valley fundraising train. You know, 2011, they raised, I think, 1.5 million seed, pretty standard. 2012, they raised 12.8 million from Highland Capital Partners. And then 2013, they raised $30 million from Founders Fund. And this gets them to the point where they can launch the product in 2013. They sell actually pretty well, 500,000 units. I, I think that's pretty solid for a hardware company out, out of the gate. But developer support was pretty tricky. People weren't really using the products very much. It was unclear how much was gonna be sold directly to consumers versus partnerships with larger hardware manufacturers. And at, around this time, Apple was actually interested in buying Leap Motion, but David Holes and his team really didn't like the idea of working with Apple and kind of selling the company, so they stick with it. They actually wound up having to do some layoffs and they, and they wound up just really thinking that Apple had the wrong approach to the technology and that Android would be the future and that a more distributed like kind of ecosystem of different hardware suppliers would be better for the development of virtual reality overall. And a lot of people agree with this. There's this, there's this thought that, you know, Oculus was bought by Meta and Facebook in 2013. And there was a big question, was it 2013? I think it might've been 2014, March 25th, 2014. And after that, it became very difficult for more companies to kind of pop up because it felt like, okay, Microsoft has their thing going with HoloLens. Apple's working on something completely secret and Facebook has kind of locked it down with Oculus. So where is a new startup really going to play? And of course, Apple, instead of buying Leap Motion, they wound up buying VRVana and PrimeSense, two other companies that were working on hand tracking and, and VR stuff. And so Leap Motion, they announced a partnership with the computer maker Asus, and they wanted to bundle the 3D motion controller into some of the high-end PCs and notebooks. That didn't really go anywhere. They also, Leap Motion also, they actually so sent 12,000 developers free Leap Motion devices to have them start creating apps for this Leap Motion app store. And the company was really popular at the time. I remember when it came out and it was really, really cool. And it was very clear that, that motion hand tracking and this, this kind of interaction model was going to be important for virtual reality, but it was just very unclear how it would actually get integrated. There was an external kit that you could add onto your Oculus to kind of mount the Leap Motion controller onto the Oculus, but that added a whole extra layer of complexity and very few games supported that because there, it was a huge hurdle just to go from, oh, we have a great game on Xbox or PS4, let's bring it over to the Oculus. That was a huge leap. And then you're going to, okay, we're gonna add this motion controller on top of it. There just wasn't that much support. And so in 2014, Oculus gets acquired and the, the industry is starting to cool off a little bit and Leap Motion needs some more money. So in 2017, they raise a $50 million Series C from JP Morgan. And shortly after, Apple comes back and goes to David and his team and says, hey, we wanna buy your company again. We're really working on this augmented reality, virtual reality thing, the project that would become the Apple Vision Pro. And, but they lowball them. And so Apple tries to buy Leap Motion for somewhere between 30 million and 50 million, but the Series B price was at 300 million. So this would have been you know, a huge down round and it wouldn't have really covered the investors at this point. Leap Motion had, I think, around 80 million, maybe $100 million in, in investment in. So if, if Apple pays 30 to 50 million, the investors are only getting 50 cents on the dollar, and then all the employees and the founders are getting nothing. So it was, it was really, really tough, and apparently they got really, really far. Like Apple had fully talked to Leap Motion's human resources department to review company benefits, and Apple even sent offer letters in Apple emblazoned white folders with like silver logos on them. Like they were really ready to bring the Leap Motion team on as Apple employees. And employees were like high-fiving, they were excited. Obviously it wasn't gonna be a good financial outcome, but they were excited to keep working on what they were doing and, and have the support of Apple because they'd be on this cool project that would eventually get made, hopefully. But the deal fell through at like the last minute. And that was kind of a disaster, obviously. They, 
leave motion, they try some other stuff, they open source this North Star augmented reality headset, but obviously that's a huge lift because augmented reality is really expensive and so much about making these headsets effective is the integration as we've seen with the Apple Vision Pro. Like you have to have the best technology, the best chips, the best cameras, the best sensors, the best LCD screens, they're extremely expensive, and then they need to be perfectly integrated. You can't really just cobble it together like it's a desktop PC. People are, you're wearing it on your face, it's gonna be hot, the battery life's important. That integration that Apple brings to the table is really key. So the, the open source Northstar headset, it's a cool developer experience, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And at this point, the company is like 100 people. It's like a pretty big organization. And David's running this, like he's been running it for basically a decade now got 100 people on staff and it's still not quite working. Like there's no real path to get a leap motion device in the hands of millions and millions of Americans or, you know, people using computers. Like the original vision just isn't really coming together. So in 2019, they sell the company Leap Motion to this other company, Ultra Haptics, for $30 million, which is like the original price that Apple was gonna pay. And it's not a great outcome for basically anyone. It's you know kind of unclear the terms of the deal, maybe it was stock, but regardless, like the vast majority of employees probably got wiped out and the investors maybe got some stock in the new company or maybe, you know, depending on where they were in the preference stack, they might've gotten nothing. But it's a good home for the Leap Motion company and the Leap Motion tech. Like David and his team had been working with this company, Ultra Haptics, for basically six years as partners. The, the company Ultra Haptics, they make these, these virtual control solutions for targeted ultrasonic waves. So the idea is like if you grab something in virtual reality, the, the big problem is that it doesn't feel like you're grabbing anything. And so the idea with these ultrasonic waves is to really make your hands feel something as you're basically holding nothing. So instead of holding a controller or virtual reality gloves, which is the kind of the common model, they would kind of shoot these ultrasonic waves out and vibrate your hands basically. It's very futuristic, unclear when this will be viable or, or actually integrated into any real headsets, but clearly kind of a good home for this R&D organization that he'd kind of built up. And so the, 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 the Leap Motion tech is basically on hold at this point in 2019. Now, there's some hand tracking stuff that's out in the wild. You might've seen some cars will let you turn up the volume by rotating your finger in one direction to go up and the other direction to go down. But in general, today, people are not really using their hands to interact with computers. So it's an interesting experience, an interesting test. Clearly he got a ton of experience raising money, building a company, doing R&D and building really, really hard tech, but it just wasn't the right time and it didn't work. But around this time, stuff is starting to really heat up in artificial intelligence. So in June of 2020, there's this paper on diffusion models that drops. There's this guy, Jonathan Ho, who along with some researchers at UC Berkeley, creates this paper that uses these diffusion models, which you probably heard about now, which is kind of the basis for all the generative AI. It's an idea from thermodynamics, but it allows for better image generation based on text. And so in January of 2021, OpenAI drops Dolly 1, the first version, which no one really cared about or heard about at the time. I think OpenAI didn't even publish a blog post about it at the time because it was so kind of underwhelming. And most importantly, even though it has the same name as Dolly 2, the technology was radically different. Dolly 2 is a diffusion model. Like it builds on that diffusion technology that Jonathan Ho and a bunch of other researchers had kind of pioneered. But Dolly 1 was just a GPT-3 transformer model. So all it was doing was taking text input and then outputting pixels, like a string of pixel values. And so it was pretty underwhelming and no one really thought it was that impressive at the time. It was cool, but there were other generative image projects at the time. And it certainly wasn't kind of the breakthrough moment that Dolly 2 was. But at the same time, OpenAI had created some other products that were starting to help with this overall image generation problem. So they created this thing, Clip, which was designed to help evaluate how well generated images aligned with text descriptions. So it would just kind of correlate the two, it would look at an image and look at some text descriptions and evaluate if they, if they were aligned. And then basically this guy, Ryan Murdoch, got some popularity and was 
pretty important in the early stage of this because he found that you could reverse the, pro the, the, the problem, basically, and take a text input and get an image output. And so in April of 2022, Dolly 2 drops, and that does use a diffusion model. And so all throughout 2022, it was like the era of diffusion models. We saw a ton of these OpenAI launch one, then Midjourney comes out, and then Stable Diffusion comes out, and every big tech company is talking about how they have this tech too. And you know, it was really built upon this, this clip model from OpenAI to help with the language processing. And then there's another woman, Catherine Krausen, who is doing independent research, and she kind of helped lay some of the foundation for this clip-guided diffusion. But even before Dolly 2 dropped, this is the crazy thing, I didn't know this, but before Dolly 2 dropped, Dolly 2, OpenAI launches that in April of 2022. In January of 2022, David Hulse is in the Midjourney Discord creating vaporwave monkeys with their like preliminary model. So everyone talks about like Midjourney launched in the, in the open beta in July after Dolly 2, but David Hulse was already working on this and already prototyping this and had a model that actually kind of worked. It was not amazing, but it definitely worked at the time. So January of 2022, David Holes is has this functional Discord. In March, they launch the Discord server and they start doing some user testing. And they, they have this interesting trade-off in timing. They have one model that takes like 10 minutes or 20 minutes to actually produce an image. And they have another model that's really, really fast. It produces a lower quality model, but it does it in like 10 seconds. And they find that there's this there's this trade-off curve between timing. If it's too fast, people can't process and actually think about their prompts. And if it's too slow, they kind of space out and they don't come back and iterate. So obviously they've settled on about 60 seconds now and they show you the image iteratively as it's being generated. And we'll go into a little bit more about some of the interesting tech that they've developed to really make the image generation problem tractable. So they opened the beta July 12th of 2022. They start getting a lot of media coverage in August. John Oliver covers it. And it's crazy looking back now on the John Oliver segment because he has this whole shtick about making prompts in Midjourney for a, a roast beef superhero. And he's super impressed with Midjourney. I think it's like V1 or V2. But if you type the same prompt into Midjourney today into like V5, it looks dramatically better. It looks like it's ready to go on an actual like package if you were, or actual like logo design. It, it's incredible how far they've come so fast. And it's been less than a year. And so shortly after the John Oliver coverage, Midjourney, somebody uses Midjourney to enter a digital art competition and they win, which is obviously very controversial because there's a question about, you know, should digital artists be able to use this? David Holes will talk about this later about how he sees Midjourney not necessarily as replacing digital artists, but being as a tool for digital art and wants to kind of empower people like a car, like what, what happens when you have this tool at your disposal. In 2023, we saw Midjourney get ultra realistic to the point where people can't really tell anymore. There was that fake viral Pope photo in the puffy jacket that basically everyone thought was real. There was another photo of Trump getting arrested that went viral. And there was another one of an attack on the Pentagon. And so there's a lot of questions about the ethics of AI and, and the problems with fake imagery. So that brings us to today. And now I want to talk about some of the strategic decisions that David has made to make Midjourney successful. And so let's start with the controversy around AI, because obviously that's really important if you get regulated out of existence or you become you know, a completely hated company, it'll be really hard to grow. And so on fake images, you know, he's taken a bunch of steps. He avoids deep fakes. They ban certain words in the Midjourney Discord. And they have kind of a democratic system almost where they hold these town halls and then they'll hear people out and people will be able to advocate for different words and then they whether or not they should ban them and then they have different tiers so certain words you can you can use them maybe in private but it doesn't go into the public mid-journey chat rooms and they try to avoid like not, not safe for work content generally but david has an interesting theory around what will happen when ai creates a lot of fake images and will that be a problem he says that you know just like we have a viral immune system we need a mimetic immune system so basically we need to develop a system that allows us as humans to know what to trust and what not to trust and this is kind of already happening you see this with kids who don't trust anything that they see on the internet and i think that there's there's not as much cause for alarm as a lot of people are 
making noise about right now. I think that we will actually solve this pretty easily with just updating our assumptions for what's possible. The same thing happened with when, you know, Photoshop became popular. Obviously, people knew that images could be Photoshopped, so we required you know, we demanded to ask more questions about the photos that we see. Does this come from a reputable source? Have they deceived us before? What are the other, what are the other supporting facts about this particular image that we're seeing? And then on the user experience, obviously a big, big factor in mid-journey success. There have been a lot of these models, but what's made mid-journey so successful is that they've just moved so quickly. If you look at what David did with Leap Motion. Obviously, it took him a really long time to get that product to market, and there were tons of trade offs and tons of problems that they had to work through. It was a total slog. And with Mid Journey, there's just been this incredible forward motion to get the product out, get it in the people's hands, scale it, make it more available, and then just double down on the product market fit continuously. And he has an interesting quote about this. He says that many of my brilliant friends are paralyzed by their intellects. Thinking overwhelms doing. Many of my successful friends are less reflective, but quick to action. They are always, they're always focused on moving forward, making as many probably correct actions as possible, a winning strategy. There's a certain high you get by working with ideas inside your head. The alternative is the harsh and open battleground of an unrelenting world. In this sense, overthinking can be kind of a drug preventing you from fighting for the changes that you and your people most desire. And I love this. He's basically saying that smart people like him very clearly, he's, he, he, he clearly believes this and, and it had an impact on him, often get paralyzed by overthinking problems because it's so intellectually satisfying to just, to just work through all the different decisions instead of just moving forward with something that's decent. And when you think about mid-journey launching with a Discord front end, that is a decision that could have been X'd in committee a million times, and it's something that many companies would never have done. But David and his team did, and it was kind of just a natural evolution. Like they were a remote team, they had like 11 people, and they needed a way to test the software that they were building, like they spun up these servers and they didn't want to have to build a front end. So they just built a discord where they could all chat and do business, but then also test the images. And then they kind of just realized that, hey, this interface works really well. And we'll get into some of the compounding benefits of that. So there's, there's a few reasons why discord is just incredible for this business. First, I mean, it's pre-built software. It's a fully scalable front end. Like you just get an amazing mobile app out of the, out of the box. And a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is just to like build a really good keyboard in iOS or on mobile that works on every device. And Midjourney, by using Discord, they get all of these amazing features out of the box. Obviously, it supports images. It supports all these different buttons that they put below the b b below each result. It has the slash commands. It has bots, and it works on mobile and desktop. It works everywhere, and everyone just gets it out of the out of the box. So they don't have to spend any time on that, and they can just focus on what the core of their business is, which is actually generating the the images. And so it's also a very collaborative environment. So one of the problems with these image generators is that it's it's actually pretty hard to come up with a cool idea. And David always tells the story of if you show someone a text prompt that's just a blank box and you say, type something in, the AI will generate an image of it. They'll type something like dog. And then they'll get a picture of a dog in the middle, okay. And then you say, no, go, go further. You tell them like, push it a little bit and they'll say, fluffy dog. <laughs> and then, you know, you just get a picture of a fluffy dog and come on, push it a little bit more. And they'll say, big fluffy dog. And like, people are not very creative by themselves. But when you put everyone together, they start playing off each other and you get like space dog with lasers and cyberpunk dog and all these crazy mashups and people kind of spin off of each other. So the mid-journey discord becomes extremely educational for everyone who joins. You come in, you're in one of these chat rooms, you see everyone making stuff and you can immediately copy those prompts and start making your own thing. And that's just like an incredibly powerful, it's not quite a network effect, but it solves that problem that that Alan Kay was telling him years earlier about the importance of studying people's interaction patterns. So Alan Kay said, don't think about features, think about how the user learns. And this was very key to the original Windows graphical user interface. And with Midjourney, 
It's all about how the user learns to create amazing images with Midjourney and Discord kind of powers that. So using Discord as a front end is kind of a honing in of David's focus onto just the core problem. He just wants to work on great image generation and doesn't want to have to do anything else. And this is radically different from Leap Motion. Like there's this common adage in Silicon Valley that people say hardware is hard. And David actually kind of disagrees with this. He says, you know, hardware isn't necessarily, it's just, it's just hard to get started. But once you have it started, it's actually one of the easiest machines to keep going. He says that with software, you're always on the edge of collapsing basically because you're only one line of code away from being wrong, from like ruining your product. But with hardware, you get to start fresh every time you make the product and you have these supply chains and you, once you've built up this system, it's very, very durable. But now the problem with hardware is that everyone is obsessed with building platforms and often they get focused on building platforms before they actually build great products. And that was the big problem with Leap Motion. There was this period of time that, you know, everyone was saying Apple's a platform or AWS is a platform. They're all platforms. So Leap Motion should be a platform. And that actually pushed the Leap Motion team into building an app store for apps that worked with Leap Motion. But of course, they hadn't solved that first core product. So it was basically destined to fail. And that's been the problem with virtual reality for the last decade is that everyone's trying to grab the platform because they know that that's where all the value will eventually accrue to, but no one's really solved that killer app yet and made just a great product that people use again and again and again. So with the Oculus, you have a platform and you can buy all these different apps, but a lot of people, they take the quest and they use it a few, few times and then it starts collecting dust in the, in the closet. And so I think David learned a really valuable lesson here about focusing on product before platform. And there's a big question about where mid-journey should go. Like they have this Discord front end, they could very easy, easily open up an API. They could also allow developers to build apps and integrate those into the mid-journey Discord. But right now, David is just laser focused on making the best images possible and the best product possible. And you can see that it's working. Like Dolly 2 has used to be the best in the world. And then Midjourney came out and it was roughly the same. But since then, like the last year, Midjourney has just completely run away with it and has like the best, the best image generation by far. And so Lead Motion, you know, they struggled with apps. Midjourney, they're not really doing apps. And now OpenAI is opening this like app store and there's there's a question about, you know, when is the right time to build a platform? When is the like you need to have that that perfect product market fit before you before you go big. And I think David might be, you know, a little bit burned by the leap motion experience, but it's clearly working right now because Midjourney is just scaling and scaling and scaling and they have so many millions of users and they're just laser focused on that one product focus. And so the interesting thing about this is that Midjourney is really the first it's kind of the first AI model with true product market fit. And what I mean by that is like they they've they they have this massive massive GPU cost where they spend a ton of money on graphics cards and data centers to actually generate the images. But a lot of that cost is not on training the model. It's on the actual inference. So a lot of times it's really expensive to train the model, but then the actual inference is not that big because the products aren't being used that wildly, but not with Midjourney. With Midjourney, they are definitely using the GPUs to actually do the inference and create the images. And so they've created a bunch of interesting solutions with this. They, like David was, he raised $100 million in Silicon Valley, run this cool company, even though it wasn't massively successful, it was still really, really cool what he built with Leap Motion. And so he was kind of a known quantity. He could have gone out and raised more money, but instead what he did was he, called up all the major cloud providers like AWS and Google and anyone else who had GPUs in the cloud and brokered huge deals to basically lock up and guarantee supply of GPUs so he could really scale this business. And that's given him a huge advantage. It's kind of like a cornered resource in some ways. And, and then on top of that, the Midjourney team has built this infrastructure that allows them to use GPUs across the world to actually run 
the image generation process. So typically if you're using a cloud service, you want to be connected to the closest possible data center because the lag time between you and the data center is really, really important. But with Midjourney, you know, it's taking 60 seconds to get you an image anyway. Actually getting that image from across the world doesn't really matter. So what they do is they will render the image on a GPU where it's nighttime in that particular country. So if you're in America, they're the GPU that you're using might be in Japan or South Korea or something like that. And then the image gets sent back to you over the internet. And even though there's a slight lag moving the image from South Korea or Japan to the US, that's, you know, fractions of a second. So it doesn't matter because it's taking 60 seconds to generate the image. And so they've, they've built this, they've locked up all the GPU supply, and then they're able to kind of dynamically load balance the GPU usage across the world, which is very, very unique. And not a lot of companies have, have actually needed to do that. But this is kind of the first time we're seeing AI models really be used in this way. Of course, GPUs were used for crypto mining before, but this is very different because it's an actual, you know, individual customer interaction where a user is putting the input in, and then they want to see that image come through in 60 seconds. Whereas with crypto mining, it just kind of goes off. So it doesn't really matter wh where it happens. This is the first time that we've really seen GPUs needed at scale outside of crypto mining. And there's a question now about whether these AI models and these diffusion models, the Im image generators will kind of follow the same path as what happened with crypto. So with crypto, you started by mining it on a CPU and then people moved to mining it on GPUs. And then eventually, people would create Bitcoin miners that were dedicated chips. They were called like ASICs. So the algorithm to mine Bitcoin was encoded into the silicon. And you could see this happen with Midjourney's models in the future. Like the actual model could be encoded into the silicon and then you could just put electricity and the signal in, which would be the prompt, and you would just get images out and it'd probably be extremely, extremely fast. But right now that doesn't make sense because it takes a long time to build these chips. And then obviously the models are getting better every few months, so it doesn't make any sense, but it'll be interesting to see, will these models move to dedicated chips and how will that kind of affect the market? It's, it's, it's a very, very interesting question. And it's something that is happening broadly in the AI generative world right now, there's a question about like, what do these startups need to scale? And in the case of Midjourney, it actually wasn't money, which is very rare. Usually when you see a new tech company, they've raised a bunch of money and that's true for a ton of these generative AI companies. And there's obviously a lot of hype and a lot of VCs are pouring money into these generative AI companies. And any company that has AI in their name or related to AI at all is seeing a stock boost right now. But for Midjourney, they didn't need the money. So he didn't, David did not raise money for this. The company's bootstrapped. And he basically just took all of his experience and his credibility and leveraged that for GPU allocation. And one of the one of the guys he's partnered with, Nat Friedman, recently he's an investor and he's invested in a lot of AI companies, but he also launched this cluster called the Andromeda GPU, which basically was a dedicated supply of GPUs that he could offer to companies that he invested in as kind of a benefit because it's almost harder to get GPU allocation now than to, to, to train a really big model than to get money. Like any investor has money, but very few investors actually have access to GPU. So we're seeing this very weird shift in kind of the value add that these investors are bringing. And you can see that obviously if you wanna start the next mid journey, locking up GPU allocation will be very, very important. And so NVIDIA is starting to do this now where they will invest in companies and offer GPU allocation as part of that. And and it's all it's all just shifting the nature of how these startups get built. Like David is very focused on keeping the organization small. He said that with, it, with intellectual labor, the effectiveness of an org scales roughly logarithmically with the number of people in it. This means a thousand people may only be two times more effective than a hundred. 
and a company of 10,000 people can actually be 25 less times less effective than 100 companies of 100 people. And so keeping the organization small is really, really critical, but that doesn't mean that he's not scaling his cost structure because obviously they're spending tons and tons of money on GPUs, but they're charging people for that and the mid-journey subscription is paying for that. And that's what's, that, that's what's allowed mid-journey to scale revenue so hugely. And no one really knows, but it sounds like they're massively profitable too. So it's a very, very interesting, different way to grow a business. And it's very clear that he was only able to do this because he had all this crazy experience from Leap Motion, saw what happens with raising a lot of money and wanted to kind of take things in a different direction for mid-journey. So I wanna end with some of David Hole's thoughts on philosophy and think this will paint a bigger picture for how he's thinking about the future and how he's thinking about building Midjourney. So it's very interesting that Midjourney basically takes language, text input, and turns it into an image. And on language, he said that language is basically magic. Using a series of incantations, vibrations in the air, you can make someone see something, feel something, believe something. You can make them change their minds, even the way they live their lives. Language is basically a virus. It can't live without us. It draws its energy from us. We got it from our parents and we spread it to our children. Language is basically a co-evolving living superhuman entity. We make words and words make us. Words are tested in battle every day. It's changing, shifting in every moment and us along with it. It's not clear who comes from what, it's symbiosis. And I think that's just a very interesting encapsulation of how someone who has this background in image recognition from Leap Motion and has studied AI, is obsessed with language, is now kind of the perfect person to work on this, taking, taking language and turning it into to visual images. And on AI, he was thinking about this very, very early on. Obviously, he was deeply involved in the AI community building Leap Motion because a lot of the algorithms they used to track the hands relied on AI and they were obviously trying to use AI to increase the resolution of the, of the input data that would come out of that device. But he recognized pretty early on around GPT-2 that there was this big debate emerging in the machine learning and artificial intelligence community. There was one camp that said Basically, we've solved a lot of the fundamental problems and we just need to scale things. So we just need more compute and more data. And then on the other side, we, ha we have the camp that was like, actually, we don't understand anything and we don't even have the benchmarks to understand intelligence. And these two camps hated each other and they duked it out a lot. I mean, it wasn't that aggressive because it's a bunch of artificial intelligence researchers, but there's this big question and David clearly s falls in the camp of, let's just continue to scale up the technology that we have. And he talks about, and David clearly falls in the camp of like, let's just make something that people want. Let's scale these models up. And he said that there are more things to learn about the nature of the mind and the nature of intelligence by studying AI. More liber it's more liberating to work in a software-defined environment. There's no approvals, like no wet lab. So there's this interesting concept of like, if you want to understand human intelligence, should you go and get a bunch of MRI data and try and understand the human brain and be scanning the human brain? Or should you just try and implement intelligence in a computer and then learn from that? It's very, it's, it's very undecided. I think it's a, it's a big topic of debate right now and a lot of people are kind of still sitting on one camp or the other, but there's this underlying question of, you know, deep learning is really just curve fitting. Like we're at the end of the day, you're just looking at data and trying to kind of optimize around this problem and pull a solution out of all this data. And the big question philosophically is, is there anything that humans do that isn't just curve fitting? Like, are we, are we accurately recreating human intelligence in these machine algorithms? Or are, is there anything more to human intelligence than just looking at data and then fitting a curve to it? So it's a very, it's a, it's a very confounding intellectual problem that I think people are continuing to debate and obviously gets really, really more relevant now that ChatGPT and the bigger GPT models are out and they feel very human. And I think, you know, Sam Altman has commented a lot on capitalism and what happens in a post-AGI world. 
And I think David Holes is also thinking about that in a similar in a similar way. We actually had an interaction on Twitter a few years ago where I was arguing that the the bedrock societal disagreement seems to be about the value of growth. Like we live in a society where there are some people that want to build a future and go live on Mars and radically extend lives and and create artificial intelligence and kind of build for the future. And I'm very much in that camp. And then there are other people who say, no, we've done enough. We need to just shift things around and keep things as they are and, and focus on, instead of growth, just distribution, making sure everyone's happy and not really taking on any of these like grand challenges. And if, you, if you're arguing with someone who doesn't see value in growth, it's very, very hard to argue about anything in particular because the, the answer and the discussion always devolves to, well, should we be growing in the first place? So if we're talking about the value of space travel and someone thinks that we've traveled far enough by going to the moon a few, a few times, well then you're not gonna get anywhere on the benefits of Mars colonization with them if they just think that we're good. <laughs> and so I had, I had kind of articulated that and David replied and said that he disagreed, that he said that the bedrock societal disagreement isn't over the value of growth, but the value of optimization that comes at the expense of our humanity. And he elaborated, he said, everything has inefficiency. There's desire and capability to optimize this away. People paid more than they need to work, work less than they could be forced to, products less empowering but more profitable. This sociopathic optimization is growth at the expense of our humanity. And I think it's just like, it's a fascinating concept that I still haven't fully digested and I still don't fully understand what he was arguing for because obviously it was a Twitter exchange. It was super short. But I think that it's, it's very interesting to see someone who's building artificial intelligence and thinking about this, this you know, pretty dramatic technology is thinking about how there could be a decision to not necessarily optimize purely for growth and instead focus on something that preserves our humanity. And he's also talked about this idea that in a post-AGI world where we have super intelligent computers, we might need to give capitalism an update. And I think that it's, it's interesting because a lot of people who argue against capitalism, they often say that, oh no, we just need to go back to, you know, 1960s Russian socialism or Soviet communism or something. And that's not attractive to me at all, but I do think that there's something interesting about maybe we like change is constant. We're always, we're always coming up with new ideas and maybe there is something new that can preserve our humanity, but still maximize growth. And maybe there's some, there's some articulation of this synthesis that will allow for you know more permanent human flourishing. And I think that that's an exciting idea that I hope David is gonna explore more in the future. And I hope he gets more, more of a chance to kind of flesh out those ideas on podcasts and in interviews, because I think he's thought about this very deeply. And obviously he's, he's right in the center of this, building this, you know, not just an incredible business, but also this really, really profound technology. And it's going to have impacts on people. And it's, it's, it's very reassuring that he's thinking so deeply about the balance between computers and humanity while still pushing forward and creating amazing technology that can be used by humans. And I think he's he sees these computers like language. It's symbiosis. And I absolutely love that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>